Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Nga mihinui and welcome to Our Changing World from Radio New Zealand National. And for our last story on Our Changing World tonight, we stay at Wild Base, New Zealand's only dedicated wildlife hospital. Wild Base vets treat more than 300 injured or sick native animals each year, and they're also involved in research to support conservation projects. Veronica meets the centre's director, Brett Gartrell, resident vet Megan Jolly, and postdoctoral researcher Zoe Grange as they take X ray images of a kiwi with a cracked bill. This is a little kiwi that broke the bill tip. So you can see the tip of the bill has been broken down there. And what we've done is a surgical repair where we've placed a hypodermic needle just under the keratin, between the keratin and the bone, to realign the bone back up. And it's come together beautifully. What we've got holding all that in place is actually glam nail acrylic, which uh, is... is Does the dog. Yeah, it, it bonds to the keratin really well and um, actually helps seal everything in place and hold it in place. But the residents are a little bit worried that I know so much about glam nail acrylic. So. <laughs> he has to teach us how to use it. None of us know how to use it. I would call it innovative use of resources. There's a patient coming back. Yep, so this is a patient who's just had an X-ray for his fractured bill tip, um, and he's doing really well. So Kiwi do injure their bill quite a bit, because they're probing around and looking in crevices and cracks and all that kind of thing. And, uh, we're still learning how to deal with those bill tip injuries, but it's uh, um, something that we're getting better at all the time. Is it more of an issue for captive kiwi? Or well, I guess you just don't see... Well, we do occasionally get birds come in from the wild with bill injuries, but usually they've been not eating for quite some time, because if they damage their bill, they usually can't eat. And so they usually come in very, very sick or... or quite a long way down the track, whereas the ones from captivity get picked up much sooner, if that's the case. So you're more likely able to help yeah, do something? Yeah, like, like all things, if you get on top of it earlier, it's usually a, a much better chance of getting it. We have had some of the wild kiwis with bill injuries recover and go back, but some of them, like if they lose their bill tip in a trap or something like that, sometimes all we can do is put them to sleep. Yeah. We're here in the Wild Base Hospital, and this facility is part of our group that brings in sick and injured wildlife and takes care of them and looks after them and tries to get them back to the wild. We have a range of patients in at the moment that will we'll take you through some of these. Most of the patients that come to us are trauma victims, victims of cat attacks, window strikes or running into motor vehicles. But we also get birds that come in with problems that are indicative of wider population issues and we try and use these cases as indicators of what's going on in the wider environment and we put research students onto looking at those problems in more detail. So if you like, the birds that are in hospital here are the canaries in the coal mine forest. They're the 
ones that are telling us what, that there's something wrong going out. What's, what's happening in, in the their wider, world. Yeah, in the wider. So can you introduce me to the yes. resident patients All first? Right. <laughs> so let's come through. We're going through into the wild now. And the first one we'll show you here is a little blue penguin. So very common species around the coasts of New Zealand. And unfortunately also really common to get cat attacks, dog attacks, particularly on the beaches, um, but also run into trauma from a whole range of from issues. And this poor little guy has uh, dislocated his knee um, and he's had surgery to try and repair that, which at this stage hasn't gone terribly well, so he's going back to surgery in a couple of days' time to try and mm. repair that the, the knee ligaments and joints. The same sort of injury you do on the ski slopes, um, yeah, rupturing right. the ligaments there. Yeah, I guess that would be one of the native birds that's very close to residential you yes. know, properties in contact with people yeah. and everything that people bring with them. Yes, mostly, for the most part, they're survivors. They, they cope with urban conditions really well. But, of course, there's always the problems of the pet predators that we have with us and things like that. He looks, looks reasonably um, chipper otherwise. Yeah, he's, he's um, a, a good patient. He eats incredibly well in hospital. In fact, we have to limit what he eats, otherwise he'll put on too much weight on his bung knee. Um, so we have hopes that he'll be uh, able to be released back to the wild if we can get the knee under control there. Seems pretty curious too. Uh, he's just after some food. Ah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. one, we do have to be very careful not to get them too used to people, but penguins are one of those great species that you can work with and as soon as they hit the ocean they don't want to have a bar of you again. So that's oh, really Fair fun. enough too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One of the exciting patients we have in at the moment is a tuatara. So this uh, is a big male tuatara. He's a lovely animal. Well, he know. is quite big. Yeah, I don't know how old he is, but we're assuming from his size that he's at least 30 or 40 years old. Um, but nobody can tell us for sure. So he was part of a translocation from uh, Takapurua, Stevens Island, across to um, Cape Kidnappers Sanctuary. And he was in a pen with lots of other tuatara while they were waiting to be released out into the wider one, and he got outcompeted. And oh, so there's a picking order going on? Well, we're not sure if it was just there was an, quite enough food in the enclosure for everybody or whether he was just uh, slightly weaker at the time and got pushed out by the others. Um, but when he came into us, he, he was nothing but skin and bone. And he's been with us for a couple of months now. He was full of parasites, so as his body condition dropped, the parasite levels went up. So he would have been starving and therefore immune system going down. Down and, and then the parasites taking yeah. advantage of it. So that the parasites that would normally be um, quite quite happy just to sit and, and coexist with him started to take too much advantage of it. So we've cleared most of his parasites and his weight's coming up really beautifully. So normally we would be keen to see the back of him and put him back out into the wild. But of course being the middle of winter he'd try and go into torpor and we were worried that if he went into torpor in such low body condition that he wouldn't come out of it again. So we're holding him, he's having a holiday with us over the winter and in spring he's going to be released back out fit and... In even with better a condition yeah, perhaps, with yeah. A, with a competitive advantage to, to go back out again. Um, he's part of the translocation is I have a student called Stephanie Price who I work with with Victoria University of Wellington and what she's researching is 
by moving these animals into places like Cape Kidnappers and Mongatatri Sanctuary, which is warmer than Stevens Island. She's using that as a model for the effects of climate change and, and global warming on the Tuatara. And she's looking at uh, their sex ratios because we know that the Tuataras are, are very much dependent on temperature as to the sex of their offspring. So and with them it's condition. purely temperature controlled because yes. there's some... Some species that have a mixture of genetic and yeah. temperature control, but with Tortara it's just temperature. It's just temperature. The, the and it's the incubation temperature of the eggs, isn't it? It is, yes. The Vic Uni team has been able to experimentally show that by manipulating the temperature you can change the sex ratio very clearly. And we're and heading uh, towards rather more males than yes, <laughs> might so be good. Warmer temperatures means more males, which is not necessarily the best thing for a population, of course. But also what Stephanie's looking at is whether what warmer condition effects have on things like the host parasite reactions that this little guy got on the bad end of. Do parasites and diseases in warmer conditions have a different advantage? Because our previous research has shown that tuatara are very resistant to salmonella, unlike other reptiles. Um, but in the move, we've actually had a couple of, of the tuatara develop salmonella infections. So it might be that in their colder climates that the salmonella can't get a foothold but as the tuatara are warming up, that puts them into the, the temperature range where the bacteria are more likely to get a foothold and, and create an infection. So that's a worry for the future, especially with the tuatara being left on small island reserves or mainland sanctuaries where they can't move to adjust their temperatures. Where they're pretty much in our hands as to, to what happens to them in terms of temperature effects. My name's Megan Jolly and I'm one of the residents here and I work both here in the clinic doing things like our Kiwi x-rays we've just done um, and treating the other patients we've got in here, the Mopox and Tui and things. But my research project, while we're on a residency, a quarter of our time is spent on a research project and mine's um, working on coccidia in Takahe. Um, obviously Takahe are pretty endangered. There's only about, depends on how you count, but about 290-ish. Um, and we... Uh, there's an intensive management program of them, um, breeding program in particular, based in a few places but localised down at Burwood, down near Tiano in, in uh, Southland. And my project is working on a problem they've got with an internal parasite, coccidia, that... In the captive birds? In the captive in the captive birds. We haven't looked for it, particularly in the wild birds yet, but I suspect captive birds and birds in more intensive situations, like on the islands, predator-free islands, and on... Um, in uh, advocacy sites, so at the zoos and at the uh, wildlife reserves and things. Uh, so basically they have an internal parasite issue down there at the moment um, that they're getting really high counts that in any other species, most other species have their own coccidia, and in any other species they would cause quite significant disease. The tarks, we've had at least one um, death as a result of it, um, or suspected as a result of it, and a few others just have really high counts. So obviously we're trying to get as healthy young babies out of this system as we can. So um, my research is to try and find out more about it, to, to um, see how we can improve the management and uh, hopefully get more healthier tark babies back to the wild and back to predator-free so you're places. finding it in the hatchlings already? Is it something um, yes, that transfers yeah, to the... Yeah, so usually we can't get quite near the <laughs> hatchlings, but... Um, in their first couple of months, but we do collect samples or we plan to collect samples um, from the slightly older birds because they do stay, at the moment the system is that one of the babies from last year hangs around to help with the babies from this year because that's sort of what happens in the wild. Um, and uh, 
at least until partway through the breeding season that's what happens. So those juvenile birds will be important in the study because they tend to be more affected by the coccidia. So how do you go looking for that parasite? You go for pool samples? Yes, it's collected. I do a lot of collecting of faecal samples and um, conveniently we have a bit of a stockpile of faecal samples in archived because of Zoe's work um, and yeah, I'm going to tag along on some of that and have a look at those samples and see how far historically back over the last few years while you were collecting the samples that... Um, uh, that these high levels have been there. Can you just come in here, Zoe, and tell us more about why you have so much, <laughs> so many poo samples? In the um, hi, I'm Zoe Grange. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Massey University, and I did my PhD, uh, completed recently, where I looked at uh, the bacteria in uh, different populations of Takahe. Um, so the idea of what we looked at, actually, initially we looked at um, historic movements of Takahe. So New Zealand's been quite innovative in uh, the conservation of our endangered wildlife. Um, and we have moved them around a lot and put them on offshore and uh, mainland predator-free reserves. And very little is known about what happens to kind of host parasite or post pathogen relationships um, in these populations as a consequence of isolation um, and also the movements between different places. So um, we did a thing called social network analysis and we looked at all these movements. So it's kind of a similar thing to Facebook and it's looking at connections between um, our populations which can be influenced by the number of movements. Uh, so you can do some fairly, actually not too intense analysis to find out if there's differences in connectivity between our populations. And what we found was that um, over a five-year period, there were several hundred uh, translocations, probably up to about 40 per year, between different sites in New Zealand. Um, not and always involving the same bird, but no, birds not from always. the same places. Yeah, it can be well. different individuals. Um, or as often can be either it could be eggs or it can be chicks. Um, moving between the different sites. Um, the reason is for management reasons to prevent inbreeding between our takahe. So um, we actually found that there was kind of quite a diverse network um, between our populations and uh, we found that there was some kind of what you could call hubs, sinks and sources when you're looking at uh, relationships between the host and the pathogen. Um, and one of those sites actually which was really well connected, a hub, because of the number of translocations in and out is the breeding centre which obviously Megan's looking at um, with her study. Um, and we also found that potentially there were some sinks, so actually where there's been lots of ingoings of Takahe but very few out, um, and that's actually the wild population, so the ones in the Merchant Mountains where Takahe were rediscovered um, back approximately 40 or so years ago. Um, so Following on from that, we actually I went out in the field and we got samples from Takahe. Um, some very kind people from the Department of Conservation were working with me to do that. Um, luckily, for some, I was very privileged to go and actually collect some myself. And uh, yep, my project is very much about poo. Uh, there's a bit of a theme going on in our research. And so uh, we collected those poo samples from Takahe in our different populations, so a wild pop the wild populations, the mainland and offshore reserves. Um, and we were looking for bacteria. So I looked specifically for two bacteria. Um, I looked for Compilobacter and Salmonella. Um, Compilobacter causes a lot of issues in people. A lot of people get sick, but in birds, it's thought to be a kind of a common commensal. It causes no issue, and it's um, kind of a normal flora, normal component of their gut bacteria. In fact, components. we pick it up from birds. I'm yeah, we can do, very much so. There's been studies at Massey from our researchers here that show that uh, children's playgrounds, for example, and interaction with bird feces could be a route of getting compiled back to in people. 
Um, but in Takahe, what we found was actually it was extremely prevalent. So nearly every single Takahe has Compilobacter, which is actually an interesting uh, thing to look at. If you look that there's these bacteria in every single population, you can use this as a model to explore differences between our populations. So um, with Compilobacter, we did whole genome analysis. Um, where you're looking at the DNA sequence of these bacteria, um, and we looked, did a comparison of the genome sequence of these bacteria between our populations of Takahe. And interestingly, we found that there was an association uh, between the location of the Takahe and the bacteria that they carry. And the reasons for this could be multiple. It could be due to their connectivity, so mixing of our populations. It could be due to isolation, and so those bacteria could evolve um, as a consequence. Or there could be location-specific reservoirs. So it could be that the Takahe are getting the bacteria from other species or other birds um, which are inhabiting their location. And each location could be different in the community um, components of that ecosystem. And so when you're moving a Takahe from one population to a very distinct another location, um, could this be influencing what's going on with them? And could they be exposed to bacteria which could potentially be pathogenic, um, and they're naive, they've never been exposed to them. On that point, could I bring you back to the pathogen that you're looking at, because that would be part of a similar picture to really work out to make translocation safer for both the birds and the environment. So at the moment, as Zoe said, the, every time a bird's move, tark's moved, then they're um, screened for a whole variety of things, including coccidia, which is what I'm working on. And at the moment, they're treated then with a product that's used to treat coccidia in other species, other species of bird. At the moment, one part of my project will be trying to find out if that's working in the Takahe, because there is a little suspicion from some early data that it might not be as effective against the Takahe coccidia as it is in other species. Um, so that's another part of the looking into the management side of things, whether we can find a better treatment, more appropriate for the tarks that, um, that's effective. At the moment, they haven't had high levels in any that have moved around. Most of the really high levels have come from birds that have either moved um, into a place where there's been takahe for a long time or that have been there themselves for a long time. But not so. necessarily displaying symptoms. You mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, you know, not necessarily the same. Well, at least not the symptoms we would expect with coccidia in other species. Um, unfortunately, we're a little restricted. In, in There's not many birds around, so we can't just uh, um, do the trials, experimental trials like we would on other species. So we're... Um, uh, we're sort of a bit restricted in what access to samples we can get. But every time we have the opportunity to get any samples from a takahe, we do, and we go looking for coccidia. Can you describe the pathogen itself? And the pathogen itself, it's a pretty complicated little beastie. It, uh, it's a protozoal parasite, so it's not like a worm or anything. It's a little single-celled thing that um, they ingest from faecal contamination from another infected bird or themselves. That's another possibility. And um, when they ingest that, it goes... This is at least how it works in other species because we haven't worked this out in Takahe yet. But um, it goes into the cells of the gut, usually for different species of coccidia, a different type of cell in the gut, and it then replicates itself there through a few cycles and ruptures those cells. So as it's released, and then it releases, it goes through a few cycles of that, and then eggs are released in the faeces again, and the cycle starts all over again. And the important parts of our project is to work out a little bit more information about the Takahe coccidia, whether it works in gut cells like everything else, in like other species. In kiwi, we do see it in uh, affecting kidney cells as well, and in some crane species overseas, they see it 
through lots of tissues of the body. So, yeah, one of the important bits is to find out a lot more about this. What it does to What it does to the takahe. Yeah. yeah, because these very, very high levels in some of these birds must be doing something. Brett, you mentioned earlier that this place almost acts as a sort of monitoring space to find those issues that it would not, not otherwise find. Is there a backstory to this? How did you come across studying yeah. this in Takahe? Rather than the hospital, though, it comes through our pathology service. So we do post-mortems of threatened wildlife from all over New Zealand. And we were sent to Takahe um, that came up for post-mortem. But typical with, with the Takahe that are in large outdoor pens, it wasn't found for a couple of days. So the body had started to decompose. But we think that it had died of the coccidia. It had very, very high levels of coccidia in its system. But we weren't able to get some good uh, histological images of the gut. It's where we take the intestine and we slice it very finely and look at it under the microscope because it already started to break down too much. So we then went from there and started to look, working with the Takei recovery team of DOC to actually look wider in the Burwood bush population and see whether it was a, more than a problem than just for this one bird. And that's when we start to get back these counts that were really worrying to us of, you know, 100,000 eggs per gram of faeces and Takei put out a lot of, lot of poo each day. So potentially very, very high parasite burdens going on. With that's the, high loading of, yeah. with parasites. And we think that it's possibly due to the intensive management of the birds too, the fact that they're on the same ground over and over again. And that's what we see with the kiwi. It's the young kiwi in creches that are most affected by this parasite where you have birds going through Operation Nest Egg and then young birds year after year going on the same ground at much higher densities than you'd see normally in the wild, which gives the parasites an advantage. So we've, by the way that we've managed them, we've tipped the conditions in favour of the parasites rather than the host. And we think that may be what's going on with the Takahe at, at the Burwood Bush breeding site. And so a lot of what Megan will be doing will be not just looking at the parasite, but looking at the ways we can manage the birds, the hosts, to try and restore the balance back to the Takahe as well. And that was Wild Base Hospital Director Brett Gartrell. And you also heard from vet Megan Jolly and postdoc Zoe Grange. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can find more stories on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Mā te wā.